A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Alan, please take a seat on my Homo sapiens couch. I'm here. I'm fluffing the cushion right next to you in the virtual cushion. Very excited about today's interviewee, Christopher. Uh, I love Jamila Jamil, a British actress, but also activist. Oh, so many things. Activist, writer. And she was a T4 host um, in the UK, which is like a kind of, it was like a music show in the UK. Music, youthy show on Channel 4. Yeah, yeah. bit youth. And bit she youth. has sort of reinvented herself in LA as this kind of amazing activist who has set up a thing called iWay, which is a brilliant Instagram account, but is kind of, I'm going to say movement, um, about trying to mm. reclaim some of the kind of rubbish ideas that are rammed down women's throats by mainstream media. Especially for young girls. Yeah. And also she, you know, in terms of she went to America to sort of have a change, uh, wanted to do some writing and immediately got offered a part in um, this um, sitcom that ran for years called... Um, the Good Place. Good Place. Good Place. And so that's many people, I'm sure, will know her from that mostly. Yeah. But she's that was a total accident. Mm. I love that. I love people whose lives just go, you know, completely in the opposite direction. And yeah. she's just really fascinating, I think. And also, I think what was great about this interview is that she talked very openly and candidly about some of the kind of um, altercations that she had with the press recently. And perhaps one, uh, and, and, and very freely about the fact that she, perhaps she had mishandled um the whole situation when she talked about being queer and about the timing of that. So it's really interesting. I, yeah. I love when we get down to it with someone and they are, feel confident and open enough to just really not be guarded about sensitive things. And this is what what made this such a great chat for me. I, I agree. And, and one of the things that she says, which is a breath of fresh air, is that she sort of started her own I Weigh podcast, for example, is that so that she could learn with her listeners because there's a right. lot of uncharted waters at the moment of people learning about huge things like sy systemic racism or learning about huge things yeah. like beyond the gender binary and we're all learning and we're trying to get it right and we're going to get it wrong and that's okay and she says you know i'm going to make mistakes and yeah i think that um people with that level of humility uh totally are just my favorite types yeah. and she's Me so too. generous she she's such a nice girl and i mean just a, a charmer and always and also hilarious as well yes. hilarious so let's hear it for jamila jamil how come you don't have a microphone? I've got these little futuristic ones that are stuck inside my ear. <gasps> Look at you, the technology. You're like Star Trek. Yeah, I'm exactly like Star Trek. Uhura, exactly Uhura. <laughs> I actually met the lady who was Uhura in one of those comic things. There was a hobbit next to me. Chewbacca was there. Uhura was there. It was just crazy. And it was, in a, it was literally in a shopping mall in Milton Keynes. 
I've had some great DJ gigs in Milton Keynes. In have Milton you? Keynes, rather. Yeah, they have like, I think I did a Young Farmers Ball there. Oh my where I would God, DJ for young hilarious. farmers. <laughs> and there were, I think, I'm not sure if that was the city, but I'm pretty sure at least one of those gigs, uh, 6,000 people were dressed as Where's Wally? Where's Waldo? I love that. Where's Waldo? And hilarious. so uh, all I could see was pissed teenagers who couldn't find each other because it was just a sea of people dressed <laughs> identically. And so everyone was lost and sad and That's alone and I was DJing. Hilarious. Go, so going strange. back to the farmers ball, what was that? The young farmers. Yeah, the young farmers ball. So they don't get. Yeah, I remember that as a thing. It was huge, and it was truly like somewhere always between six and ten thousand people, and it was this massive <laughs> event. And it's because they don't get their Saturdays and Sundays because they're out farming and selling yeah. to us so that we can eat yes. breakfast. And so therefore, they do these young farmers balls every couple of months, which is kind of like their New Year's Eve because they finally get to go out and feel what it's like right. on Friday night. And so I used to Gosh. do those of a Tuesday. Young farmers' balls. There, yeah. There's, a few words <laughs> there's I an never image. Thought of. Hey. Well, there's a whole gay agriculture movement in the UK, actually. Is there? Mm. This is a whole new subculture. I didn't think I was going to be. This is what we got you here to about talk about, today. Jamila, just yeah. so you know. I'm ready. I've DJed for them all. <laughs> where are you, um, where are you uh, talking to us from? Hell I'm in LA, yeah. I love Los Angeles. Does that make me a bad person? It makes me a bad Brit. I know that. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't. I actually, I, I was listening to something you'd said. I really sort of understood what you meant when you said about how, you know, the sort of the madness or the kind of the chaos of London and how when you go to LA that there's just this sort of, I mean, it's crazy and chaotic, but it's it, there's calmness. You can have a calm life there that is impossible to have, I think, in I think, other big I think cities. In Los Angeles, because it's so spread out and everyone's so far mm. apart, you have to seek out the madness. Whereas in That's London right. or in New York, it's thrust up your ass, and so it's just yeah. like you've got someone's, uh, you know, armpit in your face first thing in the morning, and then you've got no space, and then you yeah. live in an apartment where you don't get much for what you're paying for, and it's just like it's a stressful very fun and exhilarating but very stressful culture and I think that because of that you can miss certain things that are making you feel like shit because you are able to blame your external surroundings whereas with Los Angeles because everything's like sunny the food's amazing you have loads of space money goes so much further here when it comes to like property or whatever um, Mm. that I didn't have anything I could blame my sadness on and so it forced me to confront all of my own issues which I thought was really great. Were you sad when you went there? I was still a bit sad. I had a hangover of sadness. I was definitely much better, but I'd only had a couple of months of therapy before I got here. But I was definitely still a bit sad. And also, you know, it's lonely when you get here. You don't know anyone. Yes. You don't, it's not pedestrian. You don't walk around and, and see people no. bump into friends. You have to really make a definitive plan. If you don't know anyone. Yes. Why were you sad when you, you said you were in a hangover of sadness? What was the sadness from? I've suffered with mental health issues my whole life. And I think I kind of hit the epicenter of it all when I was about 26 and had a nervous breakdown and didn't still go to therapy for another two years just sort of uh tried to figure my life out myself practically because I had that sort of classic stupid British shame around getting therapy Mm. or going on medication etc you know I had all of the stigmas and so I was like no I'm going to do this practically and that was hugely effective and I made loads of massive changes in my life I kind of went on what I described as a fuck shit detox where I just got rid of all of the fuck shit from my life, <laughs> uh, people and things and schedules that were making me worse and started confronting all my trauma. But I did it without help. 
And I didn't really start to get help until about two months before I left for Los Angeles. Right. So I was still kind of, you know, when you have therapy, it's hugely helpful, but it also brings a lot up to the surface. And so I, uh, so I think I, I brought some of that debris with me in my luggage to Los Angeles, but it. it was great because I'd no longer, it was when you have a, a plain land to look across as in like when everything is smooth sailing, it really makes it easy for you to identify your sources of pain and trauma. And so therefore I was able to recover so much quicker here than I would have somewhere else where I might have been more distracted. Right. Yeah, I can see that. And what were you doing in your life at the time when this all happened? Were you having to work and be presented to the world and everything whilst you were yeah. kind of crumbling inside? Yeah, I was sort of like at the height of my career in the UK and I was hosting all these shows and I was a BBC broadcaster and I had all these clothing lines out and I was just, I had become full public property in the UK in a Mm. way that was becoming quite abusive and the paparazzi were just practically sleeping outside my house. So all day, all night for about six months straight, being incredibly vile about the way that I look or saying very sexual comments to me, just harassing me. And so I think if you are already going through your own mental health issues, fame is probably one of the worst. It's just throwing fuel on the fire and then the paparazzi are just like the the harassment that comes with it just means you can't go out. You can't see friends. You can't go for the walk. You can't go out and exercise. You just end up staying in your house. So I kind of became just quite agoraphobic, suicidal, depressed. And it was so funny because on the outside, it was projected that I was, you know, I I, I mean, I, and I did, I had so much privilege, but on the outside, it looked like I was this happy party girl, whereas inside I was just, sort of, I was truly dying. And so I just made a big change. And one of those changes included getting out of London and moving to a place where I would be fairly anonymous, where even with my career taking off the way it has, I'm still fairly anonymous because no one cares who I am. Everyone thinks I'm Riz Ahmed here. No one knows if I am or I'm not Riz Ahmed. Um, uh, like Jack Nicholson is like standing at the aisle, like five rows down. People care about him, right. not me. He, yeah, takes, yeah. he takes the heat off. Do, do you remember the moment when, because I, you know, I watched your career from the very beginning and, and, you know, you've had many iterations. And do you, one thing I want to ask you is, do you remember the moment that you chose to start speaking out publicly against stuff and what galvanized you to do that because you'd already had some you'd had some horrible experiences but a lot of people don't speak out so there were kind of two there were two stages the first stage is that year one of my career I was given a column in a magazine and they wanted it to be a fashion column and within one week I changed it to a social commentary column so I was just like I don't know anything about fashion (laughs) I've only just discovered Topshop I'm like come from a poor background I don't know what Mugler is like or Dolce Gabbana (laughs) please don't try and force me to be Alexa Chung she is doing what she's doing and she does it very well and I'm a completely different person and type and so I I pushed and pushed and pushed to be able to make a social commentary and I started opening up there and so that was the first time I started to just start telling all of my truth and it was received well. And so I kind of built my confidence up to start using all of my interviews to talk about social justice. And then the moment where it became, where I became diehard, that's it, this is all I'm going to talk about, was when I was 26. Um, in that breakdown year, I'd also, I'd had pneumonia for a really long time. So they'd given me loads of steroids. I gained a huge amount of weight. But I was also a radio DJ at the time. So it didn't make sense to me as to why I would be harassed this much for gaining weight Mm. when you can't see me at my Mm. job. You know, do you, is, is patriarchy around 
our society is so obsessed with female thinness and smallness that they just need mm. to know I'm thin over the airwaves. <laughs> yeah. You just need to sit safely in the knowledge that a thin See, person is telling you, you about music. You weren't sounding thin. That was the problem, was it? Yeah. Yes. I, was like, I remember saying at the time, I was like, unless I am fat to the point where I can't open my mouth anymore, <laughs> this does not impact my career. And so that just... Pissed me off. Maybe I just eat, like me eating, I, I get told off for eating. Yeah, Alan's experienced a lot of shaming for eating on this podcast, as have I. So maybe that was <laughs> what it was. And I'm really intrigued about you talking about this uh, the, the nervous breakdown because my sort of understanding, my narrative of you was that you had the, the you, you found a lump in your breast and when you were waiting for that, you decided, oh, I'm going to move to California and that was what did it. But was it, was, is that not true? Is it the, is it the nervous breakdown that was sort of, yeah, no, the, more of a catalyst. The, the, I'd already had it. So I created the list of all the things I wanted to do. I called it my fuck it list. And mm. I created that at 26. And at the top of that list was move to America. But I mm. still didn't have the nerve to do it because I kept uh-huh. being fear mongered, you know, like, especially as a woman, a woman of color, like you're told all the time that you have a sprint, not a marathon in this industry and someone's going to take your place. And I kept on being like definitively reassured by my peers, by everyone I knew and trusted that if I moved to America, I would disappear and I would never find work ever again and never get a visa and become homeless and uh, throw it all away. So I was being so consistently fear-mongered with other people projecting their own insecurities about themselves onto me that I just, I was weighed down in it. And I think there was just something about finding- Who were these people? Everyone around me. And I think they came from a place of like what they thought was love. And I, and I understand it as well. Like, if your mentally ill friend says, I'm moving to America to start again right. in a in Fair an enough. industry in an industry that is Who sounds not thin as well. <laughs> yeah, who isn't skinny, who isn't uh young in Hollywood terms for a woman. Right. You know, pushing twenty eight, pushing thirty, and yeah. who is completely unknown there. I do also understand that. And it's also, you know, it's not the easiest place for a South Asian to break out. We mm. don't have many still. You can count us on one hand. So it, I do understand it, but it was also just such intense fear mongering and like just such doom around it. And so I believed that for a while, but there was something about finding out that I didn't have cancer. I wasn't going to lose my breasts as so many women in my family have or who have died. And I was like, right, well, you know what? This is now or never. And this mm. might come back one day. And I don't want to sit here just worrying about my fucking career. I need if to only. get out of here. And so I, I booked my ticket. Uh, six weeks to the day from the operation and um, to have the lump removed. And then that was it. I was off and away. And it was great. Wow. Incredible. Um, and- but that was the thing that tipped me over the edge. It was always something that was in the back of my mind. Hmm. Going back to the nervous breakdown. Sorry, I'm, as a nervous <laughs> breakdown survivor myself. Connoisseur, yeah. Connoisseur, yes. <laughs> a nervy bee, I called mine. Um <laughs> Uh, I just I'm really intrigued about was it something was it about stuff that was it just the kind of you know societal pressure of stuff that you were finding or was it from cause for me it was very much about stuff from the past that I hadn't realized and hadn't processed what was the sort of what were the ingredients of your nervous breakdown if we can make a cooking illusion? Oh, no, for sure okay so I had an incredibly tricky childhood um, came up with no money and a really my parents had a really, really difficult and traumatic marriage. 
and I don't want to go further into that because that's their business to tell, not mine. Um, and just grew up with a lot of very mentally ill people, a lot of mentally ill people. I would say mm. every single member of my family was severely mentally ill. And these were issues that were to, you know, either severe eating disorders or bipolar or schizophrenia or, you know, nothing, de- severe manic depression, anxiety. So I was, I was becoming a carer by the time I was about nine years old for a lot of adults wow. around me. So I was just like soaked in trauma and then bullied at school and then developed my own eating disorder as my method of control and finding worth in this world because um, yeah. it was the years of heroin chic. So I was just, uh, there was, and it was just every type of abuse that I had experienced. So whether that was physical or emotional or sexual, it had all happened to me. And I think that you are able to bottle it up only for so long as a human being. And it is traditionally around in your approach to your thirties that you start to come right. undone. Like it's, you, mm. it's only, it's only so far you can push it down. And I think I was probably pushing it down with food in my 26th year where I was just trying to keep everything down so I could maintain this like happy, funny persona that I had on television. And it just, I imploded as was going to happen. It's a bit like water, isn't it? It always finds its way out somehow. Yeah. And so I just sort of burst with trauma and, you know, I wasn't sleeping properly and I massively, massively attribute my ridiculous decision to try and take my own life to the fact that I was so sleep deprived that I wasn't thinking straight. And, and that's why I'm so open about it now, just to explain to people that there is a, there is a life beyond that terrible day or that terrible moment where you make this, Mm. this decision that you can't take back. And so I beg people just to hang on because things can get better and they did get better yeah. for me. And that's why I choose to be so vocal about it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. But I was just miserable. I was having nightmares. I was sleep deprived and I was famous and unable to express myself. I was being so scrutinized, so punished for just existing um, as a woman in media because the media really is just so cruel to women in a way, Mm. in England in particular, in a way that is just like, it's remarkable. It's not even just insidious. It's insidious and blatant at the same time. And then I also had this stigma around talking about mental health, reaching out to anyone, getting therapy, going on medication. So it was it was remarkable I survived that year. But I'm glad I did. Were you on your own then? Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, poor darling. That sounds absolutely awful. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was it was it was a tricky time. And I'd cut my you know entire family off at that time as well. So I truly had zero support network, wasn't talking to my friends, nothing, just alone, eating roast chickens. And like full roast chickens in my bed, 
uh, with the world outside thinking that I was living my best life. <laughs> that you're wow. like this socialite, yeah. swanky, fun-loving girl about yeah. town. And you're yeah. eating roast chicken with your hands yeah. in bed. Alone. Hilarious. <laughs> that showbiz. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> if we, you know, like fast forward to now and yeah. th- you've created this incredible community with iWay and with your own you. like personal Instagram the whole community as well. You know, they're two slightly separate things. But what would you say to that person who's sitting in bed eating the chicken? Get some fucking therapy. Go to therapy. Stop being an <laughs> yeah. idiot. Don't listen to English people and go to therapy. Because um, <laughs> yeah. I would have, you know, saved myself a lot of money uh, and a lot of trouble if I had just sorted myself out way before then. I mean, we should be introducing the conversations around mental health in school, around eating disorders, totally. around consent, around mm. abuse. So we should be. Yeah. We, I didn't need to know, learn about igneous rock. I've never once had to fucking <laughs> identify a fucking igneous rock. Uh, in school <laughs> or the tundra I just always like so much of the, about the fucking tundra I got tectonic plates truly fuck a Bunsen burner like give me a lighter <laughs> like why do I know all about that but I don't know anything about the most important things that are going to, my humanity is going to rely yes. upon so so just to quickly seal that up at 26 when I was getting fat shamed the first time I was like okay you know what fuck you I'm not going to be obedient I'm not going to lose weight I'm not going to get a, a trainer I'm going to stay fat for as long as I fucking feel like I can mm. and I'm going to fight back and I started speaking at parliament and I became like incredibly diehard which is why what's frustrating because I think we're about to jump over to where I'm at now it's so funny to me that people think that I've only been talking about this since two years into my part as Tahani in The Good Place they think I mm. discovered activism two years ago whereas I've been an activist since I was 19 I'd say now because I live in so much privilege, it almost feels awkward to call myself an activist, maybe more of an advocate because activists really are grassroots. Mm. But I've been saying all the same stuff publicly for about 10 years. Mm. Just people are listening now. Yeah, people are acting A, like I've never said this before, but they're acting like no one's ever said this before. Whereas there have been 40 years of amazing advocates and activists who've been saying all this shit all along, but we only listen to the privileged. And even then we only do it for a certain amount of time. We don't listen to the marginalized. We blame them for their marginalization. And then we listen to the privileged briefly. And then after very quickly say to them, well, you're privileged, so you don't get to speak out on this. So therefore, whoever gets to have this difficult conversation. So true. I wanted to ask you more about your background and in terms of all these things you're talking about, about stigma of various kinds, how much that was compounded by growing up in a Southern um, Asian community. Massively, massively, yeah. I can't just blame the Brits. Like, also, we have so much shame around mental health. And really, truly, like, the end goal for all of my lineage, anyway, was just you have to go to Cambridge. You have to go to Cambridge or Oxford, and you have to be a really successful doctor or lawyer, and that's it. And so it was every stereotype in the book, uh, at least within my own experience of my, you know, the people around me. Mm. And so... Yeah, that's, that was a big part of it as well. And I think, you know, and also I always saw the mental health issues in my family result in them being sectioned. You know, members of my family being sectioned really? very aggressively or having their stomachs pumped in front of me. It was so, the version of it that I saw was so traumatic. It wasn't, oh, mum is sad or dad is sad or many people will see a family member go through a struggle and just go to get mm. help and it's fairly calm and, you know, there'll be slight bumps in the road. Whereas what I just saw was... A, like a Nicolas Cage movie it just all felt like the inside <laughs> just, yes. Good it was 
it was it was chaos i grew up in chaos so i i associated wow. mental health issues with utter chaos where it's actually it's not it's quite mundane a lot of the time yes and everywhere and what mm. about what about the queer thing because i saw recently you said that you defined as queer and that must be difficult within that uh, community too mm-hmm. yeah that's why i didn't say anything for so long and i was going to never say anything and then i chose truly the most inappropriate moment possible to do it um but i am a human why because of the the show that yeah but it was uh, i got cast on the show that centers the ballroom community which is predominantly lgbtq people of color um especially black and latinx people and so i was brought on to judge because i think the entire cast of pose was busy Genuinely, that's literally what <laughs> happened. Uh, the entire cast, of, and, and I think Billy Porter was supposed to take my role originally, and they needed someone who had a big enough platform to guarantee viewers um, advertising and press, etc. And so they, I think that was their inclusion decision to include two cis women, which is myself and the rapper Megan Thee Stallion, because we were allies and advocates, and we wanted to make sure our communities paid homage and experienced this incredible community that pop culture steals so much from but never discusses you know so no one knows about the ballroom community or voguing or the fact that everything we see in fashion art music vernacular all of it dance comes originally from ballroom but they never get the money or recognition Hmm. big pop stars who steal from them but don't credit them do Mm -hmm. so we had the best of intentions yeah (laughs) but we had the best of intentions signing on but i think i understand that people were upset Sorry, it's my dog talking that's all right um the dog is upset still that i got yeah. legendary. <laughs> um, he's holding a petition but did you feel did you feel you had to it was as a reaction to people being upset that you felt you had to be more vocal about your how you define yourself sexually yeah, i think i think people were just like why would you even care like you're just uh you aren't you don't care about this community at all. You're just doing this for fame, etc. And I was like, I wanted to explain that the reason I'm doing this is because my love for ballroom and for representation and for just honouring this community comes from the fact that I've been a silent member of this community, a secret member of this community my whole life. And I've looked to them and looked towards them and been inspired by them and wanted to join them in a more open way outside of just my private circle but felt too afraid to because of my background, because of being South Asian. Well, it's funny because it's something that we hear a lot. And like Alan and I have spoken about a lot because, you know, Alan identifies as bisexual, for example. And a lot of I've heard people say over time that people who identify as bisexual or pansexual or many things sometimes Mm -hmm. have said to me that they chose the easier path because if they fancy men and women and it's the straight version is to fancy women, then they'll just do that because then they don't have to address other difficult things within their life. Was there any element of that for you? No, no, I just, I was just telling the truth. Um, I just shouldn't have done it then because it looked like I was trying to deflect, whereas I wasn't, I was just trying to explain. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to make the conversation now about my sexuality. I was just explaining that I'm not, this like straight person trying to steal from this girl. I actually mm-hmm. have a deep, long, lifelong love and and desire to make sure that we are represented and this is where that love comes from 
And this is something that I'm going through personally. Right. But I guess the people who gave you the job didn't didn't know that initially, did they? They didn't they didn't come to you with that knowledge? No, they didn't. No, they came to me as so maybe the just purely criticism is based on their mercenary nature of what they came. I mean, they didn't. I mean, Megan the Stallion, I, be, I don't believe is, I think, I believe she's straight. Uh, I don't think that that was something that was, I don't think it was reliant upon that because the ballroom community has always had a history of including cis or straight or non ballroom people. You know, so yeah. Naomi Campbell coming to like judge a ball, etc. So that because there yes. is a history of, uh, in particular, celebrities coming and like sponsoring a ball or judging a ball, I think they didn't think that it would be this much of an issue. It wasn't reliant upon my sexuality. It was reliant on whether or not I could bring numbers to the table. And also, yeah. they came to me after two years of making this show. So I reckon they must have gone to other people first who said no, because maybe they mm. weren't willing to take a chance on this fucking incredible show and community so i'm thrilled we made it and it was a huge success which is really exciting and it's been with coming back for a second season and the contestants are so happy and it i think it might be genuinely one of the best dance competitions or competitions on the television so it worked out and wow. it was just it was a bit messy at first um, and how did it how did it affect you like you you know we're talking about your mental health and how did it affect you having all that sort of having to talk openly about something and then being kind of facing a barrage of well I don't know if it was criticism but what would it people be people saying that... that I'm in I'm in a straight relationship currently so therefore I'm lying which is well, that's a fundamental that's just uh, ignorant ignorance. and dopey yeah <laughs> yeah that was the biggest problem I don't mean that I mean just like you know like you've just basically come out and you've come out in a, a an arena where you're being either criticised or suspected Gaslit. or something. I just just yeah. not not for the whatever, or maybe even of the timing of it. I just wonder what that was like for you. I mean, it's a big sort of that moment when people sort of are who have perhaps come from backgrounds where they haven't been able to be open about their their sexuality completely. When they do it, it's like supposed to be a celebratory moment, and it obviously wasn't really for you, was it? No, I mean, definitely wasn't. I wasn't planning on it being celebratory. Like, I didn't really plan on talking about it publicly, also because of the fact that I was worried that people would think, regardless, that I'm doing it to be trendy. That's mm. why I hadn't come out until then, was because I didn't want... A, I was afraid of, like, my community's reaction. I was also worried about whether or not... Community as in... My, as in the South Asian community, I was worried about right. how that would be received. Right. I had internalized right. shame around that. But also... By the time I'd let go of that shame, I was also becoming a very public figure and I didn't want to look like I was trying to wear that as a hat to look, you know, extra woke or to get extra woke points or to, you know what I mean? Like to look, to, to be trendy, to be considered like trendy and to be on the, mm. you know, the cover of Out magazine, etc. Like I didn't want to look like I was posing as that. Mm. So I just kept my mouth shut and I just, right. it burst out of me um, in February. So I didn't plan on it being celebratory or anything. It just was a snap snap judgment a poor snap judgment on twitter uh where i just oh, said no, exactly it was on how twitter. i felt it was on twitter um and it was exactly how i felt in the moment and it was tricky it was it was wild to see the way that people spoke about it because there was a guy who's like one of the big board members of glad and i believe he's the L, um he's the labor uh advisor on lgbtq issues maybe anthony something he Alan said Cumming. he tweeted no he tweeted <laughs> that he was in hollywood right now and he can confirm 
my sexuality is actually just straight. And I was like, oh my God. What? How dare he? I think eventually after after he was then very warm, I, I don't remember what happened, but I think he got into a lot of trouble for that because that's a Good. wild thing to say. Yeah. Um, and I think he got told off by the, by the board of GLAAD. But imagine oh like working for GLAAD mm, and yeah. then gaslighting someone around their sexuality with this false information. It's like, who the, who are you? Are you talking to my vagina in Hollywood? Like, who are you? Who are you consulting? I love that. I'm in Hollywood. And I can say for a fact, yeah. this is so I'm ridiculous. Like yeah, broadcast. I'm with, I can confirm, I'm with her vagina. And, uh, We're now live with the vagina. Me. Yeah. <laughs> it was insane. So that was, it was, it was tricky. It was tricky. It was, it definitely made me very reserved when filming. Because we were filming in the middle of all of this going on. Oh, so God. I became like the dog from the artist on the show. Which right. I'm sure has only smiling. further, like just silent, just silent and nodding, and I think that's probably further perpetuated the idea that I don't deserve to be there. See so, straight. So, oh my so god, reserved. <laughs> I was so reserved on the show, but I think it'll be better next season. Oh. I feel much more comfortable, and I've been treated so well by the members of Ballroom on the show. Who I asked if I should leave this season, and they were like, "You're not. I will drag you back by your hair." So they have made me feel properly like part of the family and I'm just honoured to be a part of it and I feel nothing but positive vibes now. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry That's that had good. to happen to you and, you know, it's it's amazing that you did it because visibility, as you know, is like, it's incredible and that kids can look up and see you and go, I'm like that, you know, because the there's such a lack of visibility of queer South Asians, you know, it's, yeah. um, as you know, you obviously know this, but um, it's just incredible to see. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. And I had an amazing response from young South Asians who are uh, queer, who felt safe to come out to me oh, in my, my DMs. So it was it was very beautiful as well as just a bit tricky. And I could have handled the whole situation better. My uh, inability to recognise up until truly maybe this year or that moment that I have to be more careful when I speak uh, has also added to this. I, I don't know, you see, I mean, maybe that's, that's maybe the that is maybe the case in this instance but you always seem to me you always seem to be so thoughtful about all the things you've said about speaking up for young girls and their imagery and the you know the lollipops the, the flat tummy things and and just mm. and the whole just the way that uh and even your I love that thing you say about the double patriarchy double agent and yeah. I just think you're uh, a very thoughtful and uh, uh um and and yeah and you're measured in what you say and, and you understand what value you can have when you say it and, and then you also don't just blab it you make organizations up and follow through so i don't think i mean if you have one little slip i think don't whip yourself i know well no i don't whip myself too much but i do also recognize that like i should have worked out earlier i am 34 like i should have worked out earlier that when I am saying these important things or things that are around hugely uh, nuanced and his, like historically complicated issues, don't do it when you are confined to 280 fucking characters. What the fuck was I doing? <laughs> when I speak in a podcast or in, like, on stage or um, in yeah. an essay form, I can actually convey my entire thoughts on something, whereas you skim everything when you are talking when you're trying yeah. to talk to millions of people in something that can go viral so fast, where you are devoid of context, tone, where they can't hear your intonation, they can't tell when you're tongue-in-cheek or when you're not, and because you are a woman who speaks out, there is naturally a mistrust of you that dates all the way back to bloody Adam and Eve, where we put the most sinister intention behind an outspoken woman's words and actions. Totally. All of them. If you go yeah. back through history, every single woman who stepped outside of her box 
evil, manipulative, liar, uh, overly promiscuous, quote unquote, you know, just every stereotype exists. Nasty. I didn't understand the system and I spoke on Twitter like an asshole. Well, I don't know about you listeners, but I'm having a bloody lovely time listening to this. So uh, this is the end of part one. Go to your feed and find part two. Click play and enjoy more of the delightful Jamila Jamil. Powered by Spirit Studios.